The Women of Ill Repute, with your hosts, Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Hey, Maureen. You know, I think at this point in our relationship, you can call me Mo. I, I have almost everybody does. Why don't you call me Mo? Well, because to me, you're still Maureen. I mean, it's only been five years, and I... I <laughs> I think it's a beautiful name, but I know that you like Mo, and you know, as a kid, there was Maureen issues. So I'm getting there. I'm gradually getting there. Yeah, it's because most people can't pronounce it properly. But yeah, you call me Mo in our personal life, <laughs> which makes it sound really intimate. But you can call me anything. What I am realizing, and, and why I bring this up, is names are important, and the pronouns are important, and families are important. And there's a big difference between gender and sexuality and your parents are mysterious and your siblings have their own issues and secrets can be destructive. Ah, are you talking about your own family? Is this, is this your book? You're about to write your book, Mo? I will. It's not mine. It's not that far off, though. As soon as I heard about Jesse Hempel's book, The Family Outing, I said we have to talk to her. Yeah. So Jesse Hempel, I mean, she's super well known in the States. She's a writer, a tech writer. She's a senior editor at LinkedIn. I'm really curious about that. She hosts an award-winning podcast, which is kind of like us. With less awards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she's done 200 episodes or more or whatever. It's called Hello Monday, her podcast. It's weekly, like ours has recently become weekly. She wrote a memoir called The Family Outing. And in it, she recounts how her entire family came out in all kinds of different ways. Herself, then her dad her sister, her brother, and her mom, like she sort of comes out too with this whole, she suffered massively from PTSD and depression from this really spooky, horrible murder thing that happened when she was in high school. It was just, uh, anyway, it's all coming out in this book. Yeah, well, I've been ear deep in the story for the past four days. And in some way, it's the story of any family that carries secrets, especially from one another and how those secrets can tear them apart. Yeah, well, Jesse called it The Project. So she actually, as a journalist, she kind of like interviewed her parents and her brother and sister. And they kind of, well, I'm not sure you've quite reached the end, but there's a really happy ending, which I think you can sense from the rest of the book. That's the most amazing part of it. Sounds kind of weird when you say it that way, Mo. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds kind of weird when you say Mo. But with no further ado, let us welcome Jesse Hempel. Hi, Jesse. Hi. Hi. It's really wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. It's great to have you. I think Wendy wants to ask you, first of all, about the professional part of your life, the journalistic side of it. Yeah. So I've been, I sort of joined LinkedIn and then I didn't, you know, I kind of, there was a bunch of people there and they all said, hi, sign me up. And I was like, yeah, busy. And I thought I was going to, you know, read everything. My husband's on it and posts all the time and I'm on Twitter and he thinks that's futile, but he's on LinkedIn. Is it kind of like a grown up? Tw- what is LinkedIn? Cause you've got, you've got like a big job. You've got 12 jobs, but that's one of them. Yeah. I love that you ask what LinkedIn is because if you are, as I think we probably both are people who maybe got on the internet at the beginning of LinkedIn, it was like the grown up Facebook. It was like the boring Facebook back, you know, when I first joined where you kind of put your resume and then didn't do much. And then if you were looking for a job, maybe you would go back there and then only some kinds of jobs. But the LinkedIn that exists today is, I think, much different. It's kind of moving away from being a social network at all. It really is a place where you go to discover anything that's relevant to your business or career. So any conversation you want to be having about your business or your career, 
there's a place to have it on LinkedIn. And that is why they would hire me, a journalist, because I did not go into my career thinking that I would work at a tech company, right? I went into my career thinking that I would write critically about tech companies, which I did for 17 years. I was a magazine journalist. I wrote for Business Week and then for Fortune for a very long time and then for Wired. And I got to a point where it felt in media like this may resonate with you. It felt in media in the 20th century, like distribution, we all understood. You know, we knew what magazines and what television shows we watched and we knew where we got our news. And what we were trying to do is always to make more beautiful things, more beautiful vessels for communicating information. But by the time I got, you know, to the middle of my career, that had switched. And at least for me, I loved magazine writing. But it kind of got to the point where I was like, okay, I know how to write the very best magazine article I'm ever going to be able to write. I don't know how to evolve this craft much more. But the distribution question is no longer understood. In fact, nobody can figure out where and how to find an audience. Well, except Elon Musk, right? So you're not, you're not Elon Musk. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we'll see how long that lasts for Elon Musk. Lots of thoughts and opinions about that. But it felt to me like the social software and here, all of it, Twitter, Facebook, even Snapchat, and certainly LinkedIn, that was where we were learning about how you find audience in this next version of information. And within the social software, LinkedIn felt like the healthiest one. It felt like the one where people go to have real grown-up conversations and they are who they say they are and they know their boss may be watching. And so they mostly don't talk smack about each other. And I was drawn to that kind of healthy ecosystem, you know? So maybe I should like accept my seven requests for friendship. So (laughs) (laughs) you only have seven because it's like a 1700 request backlog and you only know one of those people, you know? Yeah. I've been on LinkedIn since the beginning, but I only accept invitations from people who are in this business, whereas Substack, both Wendy and I write for Substack and that's you know, that looks after the more personal, creative side of it. But LinkedIn, it's a place to talk to people who are in the same business. And Well, and here's one thing you probably don't know about LinkedIn. And it's why I work there. It's why LinkedIn has 270 journalists it employs working in nine different languages in 12 different countries. For a certain subset of people and not people who work in media, so probably not y'all, not me, LinkedIn is the front door for news. It is where, you know, they probably don't go to the newyorktimes.com every morning, but they go to LinkedIn every morning and LinkedIn serves up something called the daily rundown, which is a summary of all the important news articles and people talking about it on the platform. And millions of people around the world actually get their news from that every day. And probably more so after the uh, not so benign overlord at Twitter, people are looking for a place to go. Yes, LinkedIn's front doors are open for all those former Twitter users. (laughs) So Jess, we're going to move on to your book in just a sec, because it's so it's so interesting. And I I think we all sort of have strong feelings linked to like secrets and parents and whatever, all of that stuff. But I just want to get you. You froze on CNN. You uh, you were on like because I used to be an anchor. I was a reporter on television for a gazillion years. And I still have nightmares. I'm sure Maureen was like did live radio for a thousand years. But you actually froze for five, like there was five seconds of dead air. Y'all know what that means in a way that most readers probably don't, right? Ah, five seconds is so long. It's an eternity. Yeah, it is. It drove me to therapy. I was like, there's something I got to address here because (laughs) (laughs) 
So were you on camera? Were they like looking at you and you were just like, uh... Yeah. So when I was, so when I was in my early years in business week, and now we're talking like 2003, 2004 and at fortune two, you know, I love to write. That's, I never wanted to be in the business of being behind camera. I never didn't want to, it just wasn't my calling, but I was working at a magazine that was, you know, 90% older white men. And I was one of just a couple of people under the age of 30. And so that made me a, like a really wonderful person for the magazine to bring out whenever they needed an expert, right? And at first, they invited me to be experts on things that I at least passingly knew about, right? Like, I knew a lot about the internet. That's what I studied. And they, they wanted an expert on MySpace or Facebook. I could be that. But eventually, they gave me some media training and taught me to be an expert about just about anything they needed an expert for. Did a little bit of makeup, put me behind the screen, and I learned to say, well, Wendy, it's so interesting that you would ask about relativity, but what most people want to know about is what's Elon Musk's favorite color, and here's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> this particular day, I was really struggling, and ultimately, I think I was, you know, it was probably a lot of people can identify with like being in your mid-20s and just like hitting a wall where you need to like grow up a little bit and figure out some stuff from your childhood. And for me, this took the sort of like the form of I used to call it the emotional flu, but really it was just like massive anxiety, right? And I would just not do the things I should do. I, who was a person who made every deadline and was like really reliable, just didn't prepare for this particular TV spot. And so when the question was put on me, and I remember it was about the location of the Olympic Games, which had just been announced, I looked into the camera and nothing came out of my mouth. And I can just imagine the CNN producer in the back room being like, oh my gosh, Nick's her. This woman is never coming on again. And I sat in that little green room, you know? I feel that once you've been through that, there is nothing left to be afraid of. <laughs> the worst just happened. You, like childbirth, right? Once you've been through that, it's like nothing can ever bother you again. But then, of course, something comes along to bother you. All right, the book. So this is not only your memoir, or for lack of a better word, but this is, this is your first book. It is my first book. And if you followed my career, it makes no sense at all. Because the things that I write about are technology and business and then more technology and then some business. And this book is a memoir. It's a mushy book about my family. And, you know, at the highest level, you can read it as an LGBT memoir, a book about coming out. But what I endeavored to actually explore in the book is interpersonal relationships in nuclear families and how we make space for each other to grow, which it turns out is just extremely difficult. Yeah. I feel that this story, people are like, wow, you know, she came out as gay, her sister's bisexual, her brother's transgender, her father is gay, her mother is PTSD. But I somehow feel this is a universal story. <laughs> if you follow me, I mean, it's about secrets. And like you said, it's about interpersonal relationships. And if they're fractured, it could be for any number of reasons. Those just happen to be yours. Well, you know, I... The idea of coming out was an idea that I began, I and sort of entered into narrowly. I came out of the closet. I was, you know, people thought I was straight and I said, no, I'm gay. But as I worked on the project, which is what I called this, and I can explain why, I came to this other conclusion, which is that we are all born into a set of expectations, right? We all have parents who look at us the day that we're born and have hopes and dreams for who we'll become and communities, maybe religious communities, maybe geographic communities. And, you know, those expectations aren't nefarious. Nobody is, you know, trying to box us in. But ultimately, 
we grow up in the world and we don't conform to those expectations. And the process of coming out is something that every person has to do in some way when they find voice to explain the ways that they are different from what the world wants of them. And sometimes it's very small, right? Like one way that my middle sister came out is she was born into a family who prized music. We all, you know, my grandmother was a music teacher and we all played instruments and my sister played the clarinet for 10 minutes and was like, no, I'm a sports kid, right? And my family did not adjust well to that. We don't do sports. Like, yeah, I really don't do sports. But Katya was a sports kid. And I, you know, that way of coming out counts, like any way that we have to expand the notion of who we can be is coming out. I found that so fascinating because my mom, there's so many things to talk about. My mom married a guy who was gay. who was told that, no, you can't be gay because it's illegal and you're a pervert. So don't, we can talk more about that because that was something you went through with your dad or your dad went through. But it, the thing about expectations is so true because, so she was married for five minutes and that didn't work out. She was a smart, pig-headed woman who then raised me on her own. But it was, it was the sort of expectation that, you know, I am woman, hear me roar kind of thing of the seventies and and so I spend all of my time focused on my career and being a woman and having a voice and standing up for myself and all of that stuff that my mom had taught me was so important. And then I realized at some point I got divorced when I was in my early 30s. And I looked around and I thought, well, you know, there must be more in life to this. And then I finally, I got remarried, fell in love, got remarried, had a kid at 40, worked a deadline as usual. And now my daughter, same age as Mo's youngest son, I'm trying to teach her that the expectation is it's okay. You know, like you can find your own, you can form your own expectations. Like, yes, I know you feel driven because your mom was so driven, but also like find a man or find a partner or find love, find acceptance, find who you are, because all of that stuff, it really matters. So I, I think, you know, our, our parents, they do want us to be happy, but they want us to be happy, as you say in your book, like they see happiness and we all have our own version. So I don't know. I guess happiness is different for everybody. I also think we, we exist in a time when culture is opening up. And it means that the messages your mom gave you about happiness are probably different than the ones that you want to give your daughter about happiness. And that I think that that is a wonderful thing. There are people who see the world and the glass is half empty or even three quarters empty. And then there are people who see the world and the glass is entirely full. And I'm definitely the second. I feel very optimistic about the moment in history and time that we live in. Because when I look around, I just see that all of the fracture is actually making room for people to be more authentically who they are, to go to the depths of who they are and explore that and bring that to the surface and find acceptance for that. And so probably your daughter's generate the generation that follows your daughter will have even more room to be fully who they are. Yeah, well, that's towards the end of your book, you write that the young generation, like I can't remember what it was, but something that, that the kids will be better at being true to themselves, that we were better than our parents, for the most part, maybe not always. And maybe our kids will be better than us. They're certainly more open-minded in some ways or, you know, twisted, I would suggest, by social media sometimes. Not LinkedIn, of course. Hey there. Uh, just so you know, Mo and I are not just the queens of podcasting. I'm not sure we're even that, but do go on. We're not part-time cowgirls. We just made that up. But we are writers. We're writers. Wendy and I write a newsletter on Substack. It's a weekly roundup of thoughts and experiences, sometimes serious, often not. 
Yeah, you're pretty funny. You you write about falling down a lot. Uh, you write about your dog. I do. You write about sex and politics and COVID. All very, very serious things. We have a few thousand subscribers, both free and paid. And you could be one of them if you'd like. Just go to substack.com and look us up by name or go to our website at womenofillrepute.com and sign up there. We'd love to meet you there. And now back to being the queens of podcasting. Yeah, sure. (laughs) The Women of Ill Repute. So there are a lot of aspects of your story that resonate with me. And I'm not at liberty to share all of them because unlike you, my family, a large part of my family lives in shame for no reason. They have nothing to be ashamed of. But, you know, I think my father was probably closeted until he died. My mother ended up in a same-sex relationship with someone who is transgendered. My father was an alcoholic. My parents separated, but remained close. Never admitted to any of these were all dark family secrets that we suspected, but never really acknowledged. Both my parents are gone now. Otherwise, I wouldn't even be talking about this. And I have no problem with it. I mean, I love my parents. And I have two sisters and a brother. And my entire family was fractured for those reasons and others that I can't get into right now. And we live all over the world now. And I really want to write about it, probably for much the same reasons that you did, because it's fascinating and because because these are extraordinary, wonderful people who've been through, you know, they're pretty fascinating challenges. But there's no way in hell that my brother and sisters would want me to tell this story. And so that's where our paths diverge. And that's uh, apart from the fact that you are a spectacular writer, I was also inspired and fascinated by the fact that your family came together to help you with this book. So maybe I want to hear about that. As you say that about your siblings, I'm nodding. I hear that. And I still hope that you get to explore it in writing someday. Oh, I will. I just have to decide whether I want to lose contact with my family for the rest of my life. So this book is not, it does not endeavor to be my story, right? It really does endeavor to, I always own the fact that it's my point of view, but it endeavors to encapsulate all five stories. You know, my mother and my father, my sister, my brother, myself. Basically, it goes back to, in 2016, I wrote a story about my brother for Time Magazine that unexpectedly, or maybe expectedly, I don't know, became a viral sensation in the United States. My brother was a transgender man. He had decided to carry a baby. And he really wanted to tell a story. I said, well, you know, I'm a tech journalist, but I am a journalist. Why don't you let me try to tell your story? And he said, okay. And so I interviewed him as though he were not my brother. Now, you can't really do that. If you're a journalist, you know you can't really do that. But you can aspire to do that. And when I turned on the tape recorder, and instead of listening as his big sister, which mostly involved, I have to confess, like jumping in and being like, no, brother, you're remembering it wrong. This is how I remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Just tried to listen as I might somebody that I were writing about for Fortune, I learned all these things about my brother I had no idea about. I learned that he had had a miscarriage. I learned that he had... So my brother is on hormones. I had never really explored that. What I knew is on hormones. But I learned that he had gone to a doctor and said, I want hormones, but I want to be able to reproduce. And the doctor said, oh, you're not transgender and wouldn't get him hormones. And so he eventually had to kind of get them on the black market. And I just realized, oh, I don't really know my brother at all. I only know him in this one relational way. 
And so I wrote that story. It was really amazing for my brother and I. We came out of that experience much closer. And that was the precedent. The whole family ended up feeling really good about that story. So several years later, it is the spring of 2020. I am living in Brooklyn in a ground floor apartment with my wife and our new baby. And I'm, you know, working at a tech company and I think I know what I'm doing in life. And then, you know, New York is one of many ground zeros for the pandemic. And suddenly, and really like within a week, everybody we know is leaving the city and all we can hear is ambulances. I just remember like all the traffic went away, sitting on the ground floor, the street that I lived on, 7th Avenue in Brooklyn. It was a straight shot. It was a quarter to the hospital. And I'd sit there and every few minutes there would be an ambulance. And then when the ambulances weren't going by, there were just birds. Like I'd never noticed birds in New York City, but there's just so many birds. And at some point we were like, this is untenable. And so we, it was like late at night and we decided we have to go. And we we packed for 10 days and we put our baby in the back of our car and our dog. And we drove to my wife's parents' house in Tupelo, Mississippi. And then, of course, we didn't stay for 10 days. We stayed for months and months and months and months. And sometime toward the beginning of that, when I was living in my wife's childhood bedroom, I thought, gosh, everything I thought I knew about myself is not true anymore, at least not right now. And I had this very commercial agent in New York City. She's really good at her job. And she called me up and she's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I was like, I can't talk to you. I'm depressed. Like, life is hard. She's like, you've got that mother-in-law to watch your baby. What are you doing? It's time to write a book. There are no, no writers trying to sell books right now. It's a really good time to write a book. And I said, okay, how about a book on AI? And she said, nope, nope, time for your dream project. What is the thing that if you were going to die tomorrow, you'd want to look back and say, I did that? And I said, well, you know, I want to I want to get to interview my family members like I did my brother for that time story. What if I, I pitched the project? What if I go back and I interview everybody about coming out of the closet and I try to tell one story with everybody's perspective? I try to get everybody to agree on what happened and how it impacted us. Because here's a weird thing. We're in the middle of the pandemic. I'm really depressed. I've kind of stopped being in touch with my friends. But I'm talking to every member of my family every day. And if you had known us growing up, it seemed completely dysfunctional. There's no way you would think that these would be the people that I would choose to turn to in the midst of a global disaster. And she said, great, we'll call it the family outing. I'll call you back in 10 minutes. I think I have someone. <laughs> <laughs> She's really great. Suzanne Gluck. You got to write a book, Mo. You got to write it. You got to write it. I know. I know. I know. No, well, I am. I'm writing it in bits and pieces, but I don't have that relationship with my siblings. My parents are gone, as I mentioned, and I don't have that relationship. And I get it, that journalistic, all right, we're going to tell it from this perspective. If you interview them, we are so fractious because of my parents' marriage and because of their problems that we've never learned how to be together. And I mean, I'm not saying it's too late. I'm just saying I'm not sure I really want to commit myself. And what I'm getting from you Jesse, is that it's a huge commitment. And it's not just writing a book. It is a huge commitment. And I will say, I found it exhausting. And in December of 2022, what I can tell you definitively is I am so glad to not be writing a book about my family right this second, <laughs> right? To have written the book. It was great. It was important. But not everybody was as welcoming as my brother, right? My sister's reaction was, I mean, first of all, she's the second child. She's been used to me telling our story our entire lives, and I always tell it wrong. And you're a control freak. Welcome to the club. Yes. Yeah, so she had to get used to that. <laughs> and she also 
is a person who's very private and who has dealt with a lot of the drama of our early family life by choosing not to tell anyone. That's my sister. And then I went and wrote a book where now she goes to work and somebody is like, oh, I read the family outing over the weekend. I had no idea that you named your horse blah, blah, blah as a child. (laughs) And that is incredibly invasive for her. And then my mom, my dad in true like older gay white man fashion was like, well, this is a great book, but there's not enough about me in this book. (laughs) And my mother was the first one to sign on, was like, absolutely do this. And I said, mom, you know, we had a really hard relationship and this is not going to feel good at times. And she said, do it. And then I did it. And then she read the book and she said, I thought you had a happy childhood. I'm so confused. What's going on here? And yet you write that you and your mom fought all the time that she was like suffering from depression, took it out on you and you were like less than perfect. And it was, it was horrible. Yeah, it was totally horrible. And now she's your greatest supporter. And and isn't she like counseling other people and making other people's lives better? Like it just gets very la 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 by the end. Uh. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing that both of my parents did, which is why this project is possible and which I think a lot of parents don't get to do. Although Mo, excuse me, more mean, I haven't known you five years. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe your parents did this. It sounds like maybe they did. My parents reinvented themselves, right? They did the hard work of self-reflection, not because either of them wanted to, but because they were forced into it when my father was outed and their marriage blew up. And as a result, they became different people. And I think that a lot of people in my situation, in my generation, their parents never were forced to examine their secrets. And I feel grateful, even though my parents, both of them were hard parents to have, but we had role modeled for us that deep self-exploration. And I think it made us very resilient adults and it made us understand that every single thing in our life can fall apart and we, we can navigate that. I think also for a lot of people who are not as aware of all the different facets of, of sexuality and gender dumb, for lack of a better term, that it's, it's reassuring in some ways and inspiring that you don't have to have a heterosexual mom and dad and You don't have to have that cookie cutter family. In fact, you know, who wants that? That there's joy to be found in harmony. And I mean, not always, but there's so that you can have the family unit now is completely different from what most people envisioned it to be. And that's a good thing. Does it even matter? Like you say, we've talked a lot about gender and pronouns and so on. But at some point in the book, you say, like your brother, Evan, who just decided I'm Evan and I'm going to change my name and you're going to call me Evan because that's who I am. And why is it you're like, it's just who I am. And you go into this thing about how maybe it doesn't even really matter. And I think a lot of people, we we talked a little while ago to Anne-Marie MacDonald, who's a famous Canadian author who's just written what she calls her queerest book ever. And it's a great book. And in it, she sort of says, what does it matter anyway? All that matters is understanding, compassion, love, which is what Evan was asking for. So I don't know, are, are we heading there? I mean, people would argue that it matters what piece you're born with or what your pronouns are, but I don't know. I mean, does it, does it matter? I have two thoughts about that. There is the fact that when somebody comes out and there's somebody who's close to you, it forces you, you part of your identity and your sense of self is based on your relationships with other people. And when somebody who's so foundational, a sibling, says, hey, you thought this all along and formed a relationship to me because of this, but I'm here to tell you it's that. It's really threatening for you. And so, so often our first response to that has nothing to do with the person who's made the revelation. 
it is trying to digest what that change means for us. And it is uncomfortable. And so, and I'm not terribly proud of this, but like, you know, I came out of the closet. I was first. I like to, I like to point out I was first in my family. (laughs) Yeah, here's Jessie. She's the first one who came out. (laughs) (laughs) Bravo. Here's your medal. I did it before it was cool. Totally. Oldest child. But, you know, I expected everybody to be lovely about it and they did the best they could and they weren't awful um but then you know my sister comes out as bisexual a couple of years later and announces it to me and my reaction to her is kind of like oh come on you're making it up like you just want to be like me it's terrible like it's terrible i'm so not i'm not proud of that at all and you would think then that i would learn from that and so a couple of years later when my brother said hey i am evan now call me evan i would say something like something kind and by the way i have a I like from now on, the only thing I say is tell me more, right? Thank you for telling me, tell me more. But instead, in that moment, I turned around and I was like, oh, Evan, I just saw you at Christmas wearing a dress. I think this is a face. (laughs) Not very supportive. (laughs) Can I ask you about Evan from a literary point of view? Because at first it took, I had to adjust and I'm sure a lot of readers do too. So when you're writing about somebody And I'm not asking you, you know, please explain to the nice white lady how to be more woke. I'm more interested in how you write about it because you always refer to Evan as your brother. And Evan is Evan and Evan was born Evan, although it took a while, really, for Evan to evolve to be Evan. So when you're writing about that, it's the same way in some ways, I think when people were writing about, I can't stand her, but Caitlyn Jenner. I mean, back they say when she was Bruce. You do not go that route at all. Evan has always been Evan. And is that, I guess I'm saying, is that the way you do it? <laughs> or is that the way you chose to do it? I love that you begin by saying, I'm like, I'm, you know, I don't, don't take me to be the nice late lady asking. But in fact, like, that's what I was, right? I called up my brother and I was like the nice, white, very unwoke lady <laughs> being like, Evan. And I, you know, I tried to put it on readers. In the name of readers, Evan, explain to me what I should do here. And I couldn't understand Evan at first because I thought, okay, like 50% of this book happens at a time before Evan gave us his name, when Evan still was understood by the world by his dead name, which I choose never to share. And a dead name, I'm sure you know this, but for anyone who doesn't, a dead name is the name that a person who shifts genders and chooses a new name has before that name. And for the most part in the trans community, although it's always just a good idea to ask someone it's rude and inappropriate to speak the dead name. So I was not going to mention it in my book. But I was like, how, how do I do this? Because my memory, my stories, I'm sharing my stories and my point of view. They involve like three little girls, right? And we all have matching dresses and cute little blonde pigtails. And so do I go back and rewrite one of those people as a boy? And that was my question. And, and it was a very binary question. And My answer that I kept getting from my brother was very unsatisfying. He was like, just write about me as Evan. I know, why is this hard? Just write about me as Evan. It seems he's he's been the least, from the way I envision him, he's the least complicated. He's a Buddhist. Maybe that's part of it. But he's just, yes, he is the one who moves through life with a sense of grace, like he knows who he is. And he doesn't need you to know who he is because he knows who he is. So, you know, I thought a lot about what it means to center somebody, right? And in this book, if I centered myself, then I talked about my little sister, right? But what I was attempting to do for each member of my family is put them at the center of their story. 
So if I center Evan and what Evan is telling me is I was Evan, then I'm going to try to just call him Evan. And I, to help the reader along, and I don't know if this worked for you or if it didn't, but I, you know, at the beginning when I introduced Evan, I explained what I was going to do here. And I explained that I didn't even really understand it. And I tried to make the correlation to the idea of infinity. Like, can you really explain infinity or do you just have to accept it? And when you accept it, like there's the freedom that comes from that. So I just started writing about Evan as Evan. I steered away from any description that would overgender who Evan was and really steered toward describing exactly what I remember about Evan as who Evan was. And the funny thing about it was that I got to know my little brother differently and better. I would write these stories, but instead write Evan as the person who was telling me he was and be like, oh, oh yeah, that little kid felt really isolated in that situation. Now I can see that. When I look back this way, I can see that. So many fascinating people in your family. I was really struck by how, I guess, how your dad today has come to, you know, way better than me, but it seems like he's come to accept himself. Whereas early he felt like my dad did, that he had to get married, that it was, it was against the law. It was a mental disorder. He was a pervert. It was because I was molested as a little kid. So therefore I turned out gay. I mean, my dad had a version of that story too. And and reading just like we sort of know those stories now, I hope, and I and I hope at least in Canada and most of the states is not true anymore. But reading about and realizing how true it is that until recently, men couldn't go out for dinner with another man without being saying, oh, look at the two perverts having dinner together and walking a stroller with a baby in it. Like 50, when my, my daughter's now 24, but for my husband to wear like the thing with the holding the baby 25 years ago, that it was like borderlines. So it's changed. Like there's a lot of bad things, but boy, there's a lot of, lot of good things too. So is your dad happy now? Is he, is he going to write all the missing chapters where you didn't write about him? Yes, he is happy. And God help us. I hope he doesn't write the sequel to the book. It would be very boring. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But you know, he is happy and he worked really hard for it. And my dad is much more comfortable with sharing publicly than any of the rest of us are. And there are moments when I'm like, oh, and then, you know, I think I talk in the book about <laughs> the butt cheeks on Facebook. Yes. <laughs> right. Like sharing naked pictures on Instagram. Yes. Right. <laughs> but then I just stop myself and no one wants to see their dad like that. Nobody does. <laughs> No matter what. <laughs> no, no, no. But then I think, well, this is a guy who didn't get to like live the fullness of who he was until he was 50 years old. He was 50 when he came out. So any way that he wants to express who he is, even if it's a little uncomfortable, I support it. You know, I really do. And we have a great sense of humor about it. Like, he's fun. He's fun, not like the older dad you would go to for advice fun, but like that guy you would definitely invite to every party because he's going to bring down the house. Jesse, what are you going to do next in terms of, I mean, it's not like you need anything to do, but you've written a book now, which is very different from writing articles and pieces. Do you have another book in you? I loved writing this book. I loved it so much. I loved the writing part, which is not the part that a lot of people seem to love. So yeah, I would love to write another book. And I don't know yet what it'll be about. This was an exhausting process in the best of ways. But you know, I also have a four-year-old and a baby. And you know, a book, a four-year-old and a baby during the pandemic, I feel like I'm going to take a year and just like read a lot of other people's books and maybe watch some bad TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it sounds like a plan. It's been a pleasure meeting you. 
It is a pleasure reading your book for me for many reasons. And I'm just glad we really found you because your story, believe it or not, as wild as some people might think, I think is more universal than anything. Well, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, in whatever form it takes, I hope that you write about your family because I would like to read it. (laughs) All right, deal. Yeah, I, I used to think that everybody else had a normal family. I don't think there's any any such thing. So it's uh, I'm sure they're out there somewhere, the normal people. But the closer that you get, the more you realize that everybody's got stories and they've all got stuff to deal with. And, and you writing about it, I think was great. It was a great book and you're a great writer and it was a lot of fun. And you still have the OM tattoo. I just got to say. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, look at this. <laughs> there it is. Wow, you're like a story come to life. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely talking to you, Jesse. Yeah, lovely. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It's amazing. I just looked at the clock and I thought it was like 10 minutes, but it's not. It's like it's like 40 minutes we talked to her. It went by so fast. And we could have gone to so many other areas when we talked uh, quite a bit about her brother and her sister and her dad. Her mother, her mother's coming out wasn't so much a gendered one or, or in terms of sexuality. Her mother was basically owned up to having been in a relationship with a man who may have been an, a serial or an accomplice to a serial killer, a really bad serial killer. <laughs> As opposed to the nice ones. What are the really bad serial killers? <laughs> like, because they're all nice. Uh, okay, well, well, we'll leave that. No, she was. She basically had a crush on a guy who turned out to be perhaps the accomplice of a guy who was like murdering people. She was in high school and she never spoke about it. She just wanted to get the hell out of that small town, which isn't so small. Anyway, the basic message is you should write your book, Maureen. It sounds exhausting, but but yeah. Yeah, I know. It's a lot of work. I mean, a lot of emotional work to get there. I'm like, and it's something that Jesse said. She said she loves the writing part of it. I love the writing part of it. It's the research, both the emotional research and, you know, also it's hard to write your truth without offending other people. And well, that's the hard part. That's the exhausting part, because I, I think you're a really good writer. So I, I wouldn't worry about that. Thanks, Wen. <laughs> oh, please don't call me Wen. I'm not Wendy or just not Gwendolyn. <laughs> just call you early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shirley, Mo, whatever. All of these things I should call you. So Jesse Hempel, the book is called The Family Outing, and I can't remember who it's published by, but you can find out really easily. It's a great book. It's very inspiring. Yeah. So we just need a title for you because it was her agent who came up with the title. So I'm going to work on the title and then you'll have no choice. How about The Family Outing? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's taken. I'll work on it. Thanks. Talk soon. Talk soon. The Women of Ill Repute with Wendy Mesley and Maureen Holloway. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at womenofillrepute.com. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. 
Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth.